Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. This is Liz Lenovey, and today I'm joined by Elizabeth McNulty, Mary Simon, and Eric Slater is finally here. She's been so busy the past couple of weeks. She hasn't been able to join us because she has been so busy with trial preps for multiple trials, although my understanding is that the other one settled, but one of them went all the way to a verdict. Not only did it go all the way to a verdict, but it was a successful plaintiff's verdict. And so what we're going to do today is talk to Erica about her trial. So Erica, welcome back. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. you. And can you tell the listeners and us about the, the case that you just tried to verdict? Yeah, absolutely. And I really have been missing the recordings. In fact, I'm here today because one of the cases I had set for trial settled. But you are right. I had trials back to back to back this fall. The first one that we'll talk about today went to verdict in St. Clair County, Illinois, which is just across the river um, from St. Louis. It was a trucking case and it had some really interesting facts. And the, the strangeness, I guess, of the situation is really what drove it to trial, I would say. So it was a wrongful death case. It involved the death of a five-year-old little girl. Tim Cronin from our office, who Elizabeth works really closely with, a couple months ago in this case, he started covering some things in the case for me when I was on maternity leave. And because of his graciousness, I wrote him into trial. So it was a great experience to try a case with Tim because we had never tried a case together. And quite frankly, it was one of the most fun cases I've tried just because we were working well together. And at the end of the day, it wasn't an extremely complicated case to put on. Um, It had some complicated issues, but there weren't a lot of experts. There wasn't a lot of coordination. We were close enough to home. The judge was really easy to work with. There were a lot of things that were easy to put the case on. So we were very confident in the sense that we could work it up and get it to trial. So a little bit of the background of the case. As I mentioned, it was a wrongful death of a five-year-old. Our client was the five-year-old's grandmother, her paternal grandmother. And the defendant driver was our client's wife. And she was the truck driver. And they brought their family along for a lot of their over-the-road trips, which is an interesting thing in the trucking industry within the last decade or so. Trucking companies advertising um, or allowing their drivers to bring family members along because life on the road is really hard. If you're an over-the-road truck driver, you know, you're away from your family quite a bit. You're gone for days at a time, and then you may be home, you know, only for a short period of time and then have to go back out again. There's a lot downtime on the road if you have to lay over to reset your time under the federal motor carrier safety regulations. So you may be grounded for, you know, a day or two and not be able to get home because you can't continue driving because of your hours. So that can be very difficult. So trucking companies and truck drivers have asked to be allowed to bring their family, sometimes small children, along with them. And that's, you know, just how they organize their family and their life. So that was the case 
here. The family lived in the Texas area or Texas, Arkansas border area and, you know, drove all over the country with the four children that they were raising and had full custody of as grandparents. Um, The biological parents um, had lost custody of those children. So it was, as you can imagine, very difficult procedurally the fact that my client was the representative of the estate of the little girl that passed away. And in order to get to the trucking company, we also had to sue the driver, which was her wife, which anyone who practices litigation, we all know that you know, that person's name on paper has to do with how the insurance applies and getting to that insurance. We didn't know if there were going to be agency issues because the driver actually was leased on to the company that she was driving for. And the company had not authorized the children to be in the car, although the owner of the truck that she was driving that was leased on to the company had authorized it. So, you know, we thought there could be some agency or permission issues as well. So we had to sue her on paper. And the whole case was worked up that way. At the last minute, uh, we did drop her from the case because they had admitted agency and that she was in the course and scope. Um, So we did drop her from the case. But in trying the case, there wasn't any hiding it that one spouse was basically suing the other for driving negligently and causing the death of the you know, youngest of the four kids that they were raising. So anytime a wrongful death case involves a kid, it's just a hard situation to take a family through, especially when it ends up going to trial. It's my impression that the trucking company was underinsured for the value of the case of the death of a five-year-old, but they did fight liability and, you know, we never really wavered on our position. So it was tried. Leading up to the case, I really have to hand it to our paralegal team, actually, because they worked tirelessly to subpoena all of the records and documents from the Illinois state agencies and found dash cam video that we didn't have until like a couple, maybe a week or two before trial. And it ended up being really instrumental in the case. Quite frankly, we didn't know about them until we took the police officer's deposition because the police officer said, oh, No, Highway Patrol came, you know, did all this investigation as well. And that wasn't evidenced on any of the information that we had. And we didn't know about that at the time. So it was interesting because both sides originally had liability accident reconstruction experts. And, you know, we all went to inspections of the truck with all of our experts and all the physical evidence was documented. Um, Quick background about the actual collision. Anyone in the St. Louis or Southern Illinois area will know the area on the Poplar Street Bridge that crosses over from Missouri into Illinois in downtown St. Louis. On the other side of that bridge, I haven't seen this anywhere else in the country, but the highway, all three highways merge in downtown St. Louis. And on the other side of the Poplar Street Bridge in Illinois, the highways split and come back together a mile later. So if you are going through downtown St. Louis and say you are headed to Chicago, you want to stay on 55 North. I-70 and 44 also come into those highways. And if you want to stay on 55, when this highway splits, you can go to either side 
and you're going to end up at the same place on the other side. But I mean, that's weird. <laughs> like, where else are you thinking that, you know, you can choose any side of a highway split and you're going to stay on the same highway? Usually you're choosing like, hey, I'm going to if I'm going to go off on this highway, I'll go to the left and, you know, otherwise to the right. The signage can be really confusing. And anyone who lives in this area knows that people go back and forth before that split all the time. Now that I have very intensely analyzed these signs, you know, I know that you find out, you know, a mile and a half before that split that they're going to split off and it says all lanes and there's another sign and another, you know, three quarters of a mile and then another one before they split. But the truck driver was heading through downtown St. Louis, intended to stay on 55 North. And the way the collision happened is that she ran the truck right into that median. So was there anything particular that led up to the accident? Was it snowing? Was there a car jumped in front of it? What caused her to run into the median? Yeah, so that's all the things we had to consider too because you're making that point and we knew that that was going to be on the jurors' minds as well. In fact, when we did Fort Iron in the case, you know, half the people on the panel lived in Illinois in that county and worked in St. Louis and were taking that bridge every day and saw people who were from out of town or not as familiar get confused kind of at that point. There was more to the story. When we got the case, we learned that according to the police report, the driver had reported that there was a white vehicle that was encroaching on her lane and causing her to ease over. And if you look at the map of the highway from north to south, there's five lanes. Two go to the north of the split and three go to the south of the split. So she was in lane two and said she was getting pushed over into lane three and the median splits two and three. So she's saying she's going from north to south, going from lane two to three when she hits the median. And she's driving a flatbed trailer. There's a 35,000 pound piece of aluminum on that flatbed trailer. And just to give you an idea of how catastrophic the accident was, the cab of the truck ripped off the axle and like shot off the wheelbase. That went to the north of the split and the piece of aluminum came untied and went to the south of the split. And then the trailer stayed kind of at the crash area at where the split occurred. So when we saw the police report, she was reporting this other vehicle. There were two other teenage boys in the vehicle who were actually family friends. They weren't one of the children that this couple was raising. But they, you know, also reported in the police report that they saw the vehicle. This case was such an example of, you know, how everything looked on first blush is not how it ended up at the end. Um, what we are able to find out through the depositions is one, basically, that the boys would have no vantage point to see what was going on because there was a sleeper bed in the back and one one of the boys was behind the seats and sitting on the floor like playing Xbox or whatever he had with him. And then the other boy wouldn't have been able to see out her mirror on the left. So they didn't have an advantage point to be able to talk about that other vehicle. Can I jump in with a question? Sure. How many people were in this truck? It was the driver and then the two teenage boys and then the five-year-old girl. Okay. It wasn't the entire family. It was no. just these it, three kids. Okay. So now that we have a better understanding of who all was in the vehicle, it was driver, defendant driver, the two boys who were the witnesses, 
and then the decedent little girl. Yeah, she was in the back. And you had asked about, you know, was there anything going on? It was dark. It was like 530 in the morning and it was an October morning. So it was dark out. It was like misting and raining, but, you know, there wasn't any allegation that, you know, the rain had anything to do with it. Um, But it was dark. And the driver had driven through there before and was familiar with that area. So the other thing we found out in Discovery and why I really want to hand it to our paralegal team is we got the dash cam video of the first patrol car that showed up on scene. And on the police report, often officers will note skid marks or any other physical evidence. But as you can imagine, this was a pretty chaotic scene. You know, there were ambulances showing up and trying to help the little girl because she was breathing at the scene. She had a pulse. It was about two and a half hours later, she passed away during emergency trauma surgery, which kind of made it even more sad as far as looking at all the facts. So the police officer was really trying to clear the scene. The entire five lane highway was shut down, which is a huge major artery going from St. Louis into Illinois and continuing on to those three highways. There was no skid marks noted and no other physical evidence. Well, this dash cam video, the police car comes out right behind where the trailer is crashed. And we saw on the video clear as day, skid marks leading to the back tire of the trailer, showing that the trailer is traveling from lane three to lane two meaning that she was going from the south to the north. So now, instead of there being a white car, which, of course, phantom vehicle, nobody ever saw it. You know, that person didn't stop. There was no impact or collision between the two vehicles. So now she's saying she's going, you know, from left to right, but the physical evidence is actually showing she's going from right to left. And she testified at trial that she thought she needed to be on the left side of that highway, which is why originally she said she was staying in those left lanes and why she was trying to hold her ground in those lanes. But then the physical evidence shows that maybe at the last minute she was trying to get over into the left because she didn't understand that all the lanes went to one area. It was a really interesting day at trial and Tim was handling most of the liability case. It was a really interesting day while she was on the stand because we had that video. We didn't have it at the time of her deposition, and Tim's crossing her on the stand. And keep in mind, this is our client's wife. You know, it's not like they got divorced over this or anything else. They're together. They're still raising the other children. And obviously, this accident caused a lot of trauma to the family, And so the decisions we had to make as attorneys of how to approach each witness, if that truck driver was not related to our client, the exam of that witness on the stand would have been completely different because it seemed that maybe the story that was told, nobody knew if there actually was a vehicle, but we weren't going to accuse her of lying about it. You know, that's again, that's our client's wife. And so it was a really tricky situation. And on the stand, We showed the video and, you know, kind of held her hand through it and said, do you agree with us that maybe you're just trying to get over? And it was, you could just see her, her body language changed. She kind of slumped and she said, yeah, I see what you're saying there with the skin marks. Yeah, that might've been what happened. So, you know, this whole time 
the defense attorneys are disputing liability, trying to blame it all on this, you know, phantom vehicle who she was saying was pushing her, you know, from the north lanes to the south lanes. And the physical evidence shows that she's going from the south to the north. It just it didn't match up. And nobody told her, you know, the defense attorneys were putting on this um, liability case about this phantom vehicle and, you know, it wasn't her fault and, you know, all this. But then no one showed her what the physical evidence was. And it was equally available to all parties. I put on most of the damages evidence and, you know, it was just a really tough direct exam of our client talking about her her daughter. You know, it was her granddaughter, but she had raised that little girl since she was three months old. So for all intents and purposes, you know, these were her kids that she was raising. So it was a really difficult trial, you know, as far as putting on the case because of the strange facts, which, you know, again, we're pushing it to trial um, because things weren't cut and dry. And quite frankly, the defense attorneys were relying on the fact that the jury was just going to think it's weird. You know, like, okay, so if we award, you know, this family or the little girl's estate funds, does now the driver who you're saying attorneys caused the death, does she get to share in that? Like, how does that go? So anyway, we at the end of the day, we did get a um, plaintiff's verdict. I think some of the issues that we've been talking about and the weirdness of the case were reflected in that verdict. But at the end of the day, it was a really difficult case to win. The way it was argued, I think it was a very difficult case to win. And we are very, very pleased <laughs> with, with having won. And quite frankly, from a personal level, I didn't have a case go to trial in 2019. So I hadn't tried a case in a while since I hadn't tried a case in that year before things shut down from COVID. And it was just good to like flex that muscle. And the past couple months of prepping these three cases for trial simultaneously, it made me feel like so confident because the more you flex that muscle, it's kind of like, oh yeah, I'll just go try another case. Like no big deal. It was a good experience and I am really happy for our clients that, you know, it went in their favor and that they can get some closure hopefully and get past at least this part of it. Because I know that the case went on for about two years after the death and closing up this part had a big part in helping them get past it. Were you able to talk to any of the jurors afterwards to see what they thought about some of the wonkier issues in the case? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because we talked to a couple of them and their comments were not really what we expected. We got some really what we thought were bad questions from the jury once they went out. And quite frankly, we thought it was going to be a defense verdict. We focused a lot on the liability because we had to and equally focused on damages. But I think I learned from talking to the jurors, they were struggling with like how to value a five-year-old's life. And absolutely. I mean, and that came up in Vordire as well. Like, how do we do that? You know, you're going to ask for this number. It's a very large number. How do we do that? In the future, I think that we were so we were so concerned thinking we were going to lose on liability. Not that we forgot about damages, but we didn't like bring in a bunch of damages witnesses. We made the last second decision to not call her siblings because her three siblings were there with their family all week for trial. And the kids were like eight and 10. It was twin girls who were 10. And then the little boy was eight. And then she was five when she passed away. 
they had all been deposed by the defense attorney. And it was kind of, you know, that, hey, how are you? Like, you know, what are you like in school? You know, who are your friends? Just kind of those, like, get to know you questions. And the kids were adorable. Like, they just... They were just so such loving little kids, and they were so nice to me. And every time I saw them, they, they gave me a hug and, like, really sweet kids. And we had planned to put our client on, you know, to talk about her daughter. And then we were going to put the kids on and, you know, do the same thing, like tell us your name, you know, what's your favorite subject in school, things like that. And at the last minute, we decided just to introduce them to the jury because we were walking a fine line about putting it on too thick you know, and having the kids testify. It just didn't feel right at the end. So we went ahead and pulled that. But the jury did get to meet them and their mom, our client, introduced them to the jury. So, you know, we wanted the jury to see who, basically who the money would be going to because there was this weird issue of wondering who the money was going to go to because one of the people who was potentially a beneficiary was involved in causing the accident. And under Illinois law, she couldn't recover if she was more than 50% responsible for the accident, but she still you know, married to the spouse who would be recovering quite a bit of the money anyway. One of the weirdest points of the case was, of course, that one wife was suing the other wife so that the jury would award money to their family. And quite frankly, that is why the case got tried, because the defendants basically had a really good jury nullification argument. Of course, if you were following the instructions, The law treats that driver as a stranger to the little girl that passed away. So if you find that person is negligent and liable for the accident, then you must award damages. And that's exactly what the jury did. They followed the law and at the end of the day found damages based on the liability. But there's nothing in the jury instructions that say unless they're related or unless it's the same household. You know, I mean, there's no room for that consideration. And that is why the case was hard to resolve because the defendants were relying on the jury just finding that weird or insincere or whatever. Quite frankly, that situation comes up quite a bit when like two spouses are in a car and the passenger is injured, but the driver could potentially be at fault. Say it's an uninsured motorist case where the other driver didn't have insurance If you need to sue to collect your own underinsured money, you actually have to sue your spouse. There's no one else to sue because it's there's no other driver who has insurance money. So this has happened before. And we assume that jurors also get it, that there's insurance money available. And in Fort Dyer, quite frankly, it came up like four or five times. Like one guy even just flat out said like, well, I would consider their motivations because clearly they're just trying to get at insurance money. And he said that on Fort Dyer. And we were pretty happy he said that because we're like, yeah, that's what we want to talk about. Like, who else feels that way? And it's it's not something that we wanted to argue against with the jurors because we want to know if that's how they feel. Now, quite frankly, I, in my own head, thought like, well, every single lawsuit is to recover money. But this was weird enough that we knew some jurors were going to have a problem with it. It makes me think of that case a couple years ago. Do you remember it was a huge news story because a woman was suing her like five-year-old nephew who had pushed her at a house party. Like she was sitting in a chair. The nephew had jumped on her. She fell, broke her wrist, and then she had to sue 
her nephew. And the internet went nuts about this awful, crazy woman that was suing her sweet, poor five-year-old nephew. And I'm sitting here as a plaintiff's attorney saying, yeah, that's the only way to get the to the homeowner's insurance is, is she has to sue the nephew. But that's something that I don't think people really realize as much as we may think they do because we're probably incapable of seeing anything outside of the eyes of a lawyer. But it's the same situation. You have to find, you have to bring in the right party in order to collect. Right. That case was definitely my torts book. Erica, were you the only female attorney in the case? I was. And a couple of strange things happened. Because <laughs> you had I wasn't female, before right, trial. you had female clients, but then it was you and Tim. Right. And then, uh, yeah, I was just curious what the makeup of that was considering the outcome. Obviously, we all know that that has to play a factor to some extent. So I'm just curious how that went. Yes, you're right. I was the only female attorney who was trying the case and it was a male judge. There was another woman at the defense firm who was working up the case and I had been, you know, working on the case with her and um, the other partner over there who ended up trying the case. And then when we show up to the pretrial conference, she wasn't there, and I ex- had expected her to be. She and I got along really, really well. And I was looking forward to working with her on the case, quite frankly. But the uh, defense attorney showed up with another mid-level male attorney who had been with the firm about six weeks. And there was actually a very strange moment, as our listeners know. And I will repeat, I just got back from maternity leave a couple months ago. He knew I was on maternity leave and worked with us, you know, about that. And he knew Tim was covering things on the case because I was on leave. And so I asked him, I said, and and I will choose a different name, make this anonymous. I was like, hey, Bob, you know, are we going to see, you know, Shelly on the case? And he just looked at me and he said... And this is in front of his other attorney that's with him. And he goes, no, you know, he slows down. He says, she's got little kids at home. Oh, God. <laughs> I was just yes. kind of like, okay. <laughs> and it was really strange for a couple reasons. One, I was like, well, you obviously understand what ears that is falling on. And keep in mind, this attorney runs the firm, is close to retirement age. And my first thought was, oh, what world, you know, does she not feel like she can try cases? I didn't like say anything immediately because I also had the thought like, hey, if she is doing her work and that's not something she wants to do. I also, you know, want to protect her ability to not do that. But the other weird thing is that he also said it in front of the other male attorney who was with him, who probably been practicing a couple more years than I have. So mid-level attorney. And on Monday morning, I hear an exchange between them and the main defense attorney comes in and he says, you know, oh, hi, you know, how are you doing? And his first reaction was, oh, yeah, everything was going well. You know, little Steven wasn't giving us any trouble this morning. We got him out of the house. And so he's talking about getting his little kid like to cooperate with the fact that he's got to get over to trial. And I was just thinking, like, how does that hit his ears? Because we've said it before, you know, most of my friends, you know, they're very equal parents. And especially if they're both working, you know, so hearing that you know, oh, that attorney has little kids at home, probably hit that attorney's ears just the same way, 
you know, it hit mine. No, and probably not the same. Way. Well, I don't know his <laughs> life. I mean, you know, whatever. <laughs> but anyway, there's so much that goes into a comment like that that can be interpreted by the lawyers who are listening or the other professionals who are listening to that that might make them make assumptions about the female attorney who didn't show up. And that's why I that comment irks me so much. Because to your point, Erica, which is very, you know, comes from a place of perspective um, and me just coming off of maternity leave, I thought the same thing that you did, which was, look, if that's her decision and she wanted to do that, all the power to her, whatever she needs to do and wants to do as long as she's doing that. But not if it's, oh, she has a new baby at home. She out. <laughs> like that's No, not- she, it's not even a new baby, you know, like Ugh. we had talked about that because, you know, she had known I was pregnant and whatever. And I can't help but think how that comment was supposed to hit my ears because right. a lot of this trial and a lot of working with this defense attorney was comments and antics, if you will, that were meant to intimidate me. Even at the beginning of the case, he came out real aggressive. And I, you always know when someone's trying to intimidate you and like see what you're made of and test you a little bit. And I was, you know, called another attorney or two who I figured had worked against him. One woman in particular does a lot of trucking. And I'm like, hey, do you know this guy? Like, have you worked against him? And she's like, oh, yeah, he's just trying to test you. Like, just, you know, keep your shoulders up and he'll get past it. And he did. You know, I think he eventually learned that we were equal advocates, but can't give him a pass on his, you know, choice to share that comment. What I'm thinking of is not just in terms of this particular attorney's comments, how it would affect you and how it would land on your ears as someone who has not one, but two very small children at home, including one still pretty brand new baby. That's odd to me and off-putting to me, but also looking at this from the perspective of the female associate. Mm -hmm. And for someone who is on the same side as her, should have her best interests at heart to make a comment like that, regardless of whether she wanted to be there, why she couldn't be there, this, that, or the other, but to put someone's business like that in such a way with such a I'm going to say flippant comment. Mm -hmm. I think that's incredibly disrespectful. And I feel, I don't know if bad is the right word, but I feel something for that particular female associate. Because here's the thing, I'm putting it in perspective of there are times where I'm covering for another attorney. And it's for whatever reason. And when I am either explaining to the court or explaining to opposing counsel or whoever it is why I'm there Or if I'm in a situation where I'm by myself and someone else can be there with me, I try really hard to protect my co-worker's business. And I say they just weren't available. And that's really all he needed to say was, you know, why couldn't Shelly come? Well, unfortunately, she wasn't available. Something came up. You leave it vague because you want to keep your co-worker's business their business. And so not only did he take the opportunity to make a weird personally, in in my mind, a weird swipe at you. He also sort of flashed her business and and made her in the process also look bad. 
Because that, that sounds bad to say that she can't be a trial lawyer because she's got little kids at home. Yeah, I hear you. And I agree with you 100% in retrospect. But I have to say, I didn't let it throw me for a second. That's and very I good. Didn't, I didn't address it head on. Keep in mind, it's at the pretrial conference, too. And honestly, I took that comment. I understood that it was meant to have an impact on me. And literally in my head, I said, game on. Let's go. I'll show you what a woman with two little kids can do in trial. I felt so resolved and confident because I was like, yeah, I'm doing this. Two small kids. And guess what? I go home every day and my wife or I explain to my kids that, you know, mommy got home late tonight or mommy didn't put you to bed tonight because she's helping another family. And I'm showing my kids how you be independent, how you be self-sufficient, and how you get shit done, you know? <laughs> like, this is how we do it. And and I don't want you and any of our listeners to think for a second that you can't put on your armor, hear that kind of thing, let it go in one ear and out the other, and do your job and represent your family. So let's make a world where the people that we work with can try cases if they have young families at home. And it made me so happy and thankful for where we work because Mike, you know, yeah, totally. And I mean, you, you can just tell like my energy just gets up when I hear something like that because it's like, yeah, come at me, bro. Like whatever. The other thing I'll share <laughs> about that trial, there was one other very goofy thing from this defense attorney. Uh, it was in the middle of trial. It was kind of late night. Everyone was exhausted. We were arguing something in front of the judge about whether certain testimony was coming in the next day. Tim and the defense attorney were arguing it, and we were right. And the judge was going to fine for us, but there was a lot of contention between the attorneys, and like people were just tired, and stuff was breaking down. you know. So I went and took over the argument for Tim. Uh, and I don't think Bob <laughs> really liked that because, you know, he was getting double teamed from our side. But, you know, what could you do? He didn't let the other attorney do anything. So I started my argument and he like looked at me while I was arguing and just made this face as if he was going to like growl at me. But it, but it was silent. So he's like going like, <laughs> and and he just looked right at me. And I was kind of caught off guard by it, but I'm also in the middle of arguing to the judge. And, you know, in a deposition, how if um, someone raises their voice or something like you might actually say that on the record. So it's recorded since, you know, the record is just black and white words. I did the same thing there. I said, well, Bob, if you can mean mug me all you want, but the point still is, and continued my <laughs> argument. It's a perfect example of how he made a, like, I'm still going to call it a swipe at you and did not get a rise out of you. But then when you were just doing your job, that clearly got a reaction out of him. So good work. Thanks. Good work, Erica. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, kudos. Well, Erica, we are so proud of you for taking a swing and hitting it out of the park home run plaintiff's verdict congratulations erica and tim as well for stepping up and second chairing for erica and i want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in as we got to do a little bit of a breakdown of erica's recent success and if you have any questions or comments you can send them to us at heels in the courtroom.law and remember new episodes drop every wednesday thanks so much guys bye amy liz erica Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. 
Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and subscribe today.